Great. It's wonderful to see you all here this evening. Anybody here at the review panel for the first time? Yes. First time ever? Goodness. Excellent. Good to see you. Welcome. Um, great. My great pleasure now. I've used the word great too many times. My inner editor is telling me. <laughs> but it is my significant pleasure to introduce uh, this evening's speakers, my guests. From your far left, uh, Thomas, Thomas McKelly is the weekend editor at Hyperallergic Magazine. The weekend section was launched uh, under his stewardship uh, in 2012. Prior to that, he was uh, a, man a managing art editor at the Brooklyn Rail, and he is also a visual artist. Uh, he, in fact, has a show running presently in Manhattan um, at Apartment 38. Karen E. Jones is uh, an art history professor at CUNY. Uh, she uh, uh, has a, uh, a catalogue uh, coming out soon from the Center for Book Arts that's uh, uh, a major st study of uh, uh, small edition um, publications. Um, and um, its, its title is Archive Bound. And um, Jennifer Coates is a painter. She has a distinction. Uh, you, I think this would be called by um, some politicians uh, uh, a revolving door policy that this uh, uh, art critical is guilty of uh, <laughs> perpetuating, uh, uh, because she is an artist that we reviewed last year. And here she is, a panelist, uh, and a reviewer uh, this year. Um, so I think that's a warning to all art critics. Be careful what you say about uh, uh, <laughs> somebody's show. They may be back uh, talking about yours before you know it. Um, <laughs> uh, Jennifer shows with uh, Afraid and Volume. Uh, I can't remember who the critics were that looked at your show. Do you, do you recall? Alexi. Alexi Worth. Oh, Ara. Ara Mergen. And Siri Hustvet. No, so no? An another woman. I can't remember. Another woman. Yes. Okay, great. Well, I didn't know. <laughs> you didn't know. And you, who didn't say anything that caused you to want to etch her name in your heart? That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> we can look it up in the archive, which is a, a good segue to, or a good reminder to tell you that um, everything you hear this evening and everything that's been said since. Jerry Saltz, Maureen Malarkey, and Ken Johnson first joined me on a podium at the National Academy in 2004. Can be heard uh, in the podcast section at artcritical.com. So, Jennifer, um, I didn't mention yet, didn't finish up on Jennifer. I did also want to mention that um, she has a show opening at Freight and Volume on March 16th, and that she, as a, a writer, uh, we see her most frequently uh, in Two Coats of Paint and Time Out New York and in the past in Art in America. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your panel. <laughs> Great. And panelists, we can just swivel around and <laughs> enjoy the movies. Are you going to play piano? Uh, someone is. Just I'm curious. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we can hear the first movie. See the first movie. Since completing her MFA at Yale in 2001, 
Laurel Nakadate has gained notoriety and acclaim for provocative works that often demonstrate personal risk in achieving artistic goals, photographing strangers met through personal ads or on the internet. Her latest body of work takes a more personal approach. Shortly after the birth of her son, the artist's mother died, without having the chance to meet her grandchild. Strangers once again figure into the creation of her work, however, as Nakadate hires anonymous technicians on the internet to merge photographs of her mother, spanning the course of her life, with images of her infant son. Her only direction to these technicians was to place the baby in the woman's arms. The altered photographs imagine a history and a future that cannot exist. Another work, Executive Order 9066, connects the life of her son to that of her father, who from 1944 to 45, at the age of one, lived with his family in the Minidoka War Relocation Camp in Hunt, Idaho. There are also two videos in the show, plus an audio piece. Played through a public phone, City of Stars is compiled from sign-offs from voice messages from the artist's mother. Pakistan-born, Berlin-based artist Mariam Jaffrey's debut solo exhibition at Kai Matsumiya Gallery on the Lower East Side is titled War on Wellness. The centerpiece of the show is Where We're At, a giant eight-foot square crossword puzzle devised in collaboration with legendary New York Times puzzler Ben Tausig. On the Black filler squares is a range of political literature ranging from libertarian and neoliberal tracts to books of liberal and leftist persuasion. Further into the exhibition, we come to American Buddhist. This sculpture, made to resemble a meditation altar, includes a video in the public domain of a U.S. Army chaplain who leads troops through a meditation session um, at a base in Iraq. According to the gallery's press release, the sculptures and photo works in the Wellness Post-Industrial Complex series present a rift between mind, body and self that is rough, mute and fragmented. These works, despite their personal and seemingly interior tone, deliberately incorporate mass-produced objects such as silicone body parts sourced from online fetish stores in China and stock photos presented with watermarks intact, underlying how the search for interiority and personal narratives leads paradoxically, but logically enough, to the exterior world. Okay. Well, I'm not going to critique my own video editing skills, but I <laughs> would like to have synced the voice with the images a little better in part two. Anyway, Self-criticism does not make for a riveting debate, so let's um, <laughs> leave that out and um, proceed with Nakadate, an, in, an intriguing show. Um, Karen, uh, juggling a lot of themes and issues here. Definitely juggling a lot of very interesting themes of maternity, of the bond uh, and the power of the relationship between the mother and the child. And I could see a lot of psychoanalytic theory of Lacan and Kristeva uh, going into a reading or Sassou. Uh, also this idea of internment um, during World War II. So a lot of very interesting themes that are addressed. Um, however, um, 
the way that they are um, presented, I feel sort of lacked um, sort of depth and um, lacked criticality. Uh, there seem to be a lot of random choices in terms of the conceptual aspects of the exhibition. And I thought that the artist touched on, you know, the idea of these outmoded technologies and memory. But for me, I really felt as though there was a lot of sort of randomness in terms of uh, the way that the artist put the works together and the installation as a whole. Right, right. Did it cohere properly for you, Thomas? Um, actually, I agree with uh, Karen. Um, both these shows, I felt the artists were more interesting than these particular shows happened to be. Mm. Um, what I felt about, uh, I mean, I, there are pitfalls when you approach an artist and you, you know, we all expect them to repeat what we find most uh, gripping about them. And um, this is actually, I've read a lot about Nakadake's work, but I, this is the first actual show that I was able to get to. And, um, and what you know, we all know about her work is her interactions with strangers. And these strangers <clears throat> were uh, these anonymous people in the internet. Uh, and all that resulted from her encounter was a bunch of badly photoshopped uh, images. Um, it's a very touching thought, but it didn't go, it, it didn't really grip me. There were some beautiful uh, images, but a lot of them simply were um, uh, kind of shoddy, and you just began to wonder after seeing, I mean, there were quite a few of them, something like 35 of these. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you began to wonder just what what the point of so many of them were. And, uh, and other things like the phone booth where you heard the mother's voice, and I thought I'd be very intrigued by it. Uh, it was simply the mother telling her over and over and over again, I love you. Um, and I thought to myself, well, this would be very interesting if she were estranged from her mother, but it didn't seem as if she were. Uh, and so I, I, I went away from the show feeling uh, kind of let down. Um, the one, the one piece I found intriguing was the, um, the, the first image we saw, which was a video of the artist, uh, very pregnant with that Wookiee mask, and the the Back audio the, yes. was her just howling, and it really gave you this visceral sense of the transformation of her body and the transformation of her life that she was going through uh, in her pregnancy. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Jennifer, an, an artist who makes her mark with a kind of um, audacious, uh, risky um, uh, provocation, um, retreating into the personal sphere, uh, or or is that um, is that a misreading of what's going on? I mean, I think she is retreating into the personal sphere, but what struck me as interesting, not so much the installation or the photographs themselves, uh, which I, I kind of felt like I, I came away thinking I, I'm not as interested in this as her other work, but um, the more I thought about it, I thought about um, uh, magical thinking and wish fulfillment and the history of photography and the history of imaging, maybe more generally, and thinking back to um, 19th century spirit photography, for instance, like um, this kind of, um, you know, charlatan, uh, yes. William Mumler was, was one of the first spirit photographers um, 
after the Civil, Civil War, and he was capitalizing on the deaths of um, all of these people who, who lost family members. And um, so there was this double exposure, you know, an early innovation in photography, the ghost of a dead relative haunting the image of a, of a portrait. And I was thinking about that in terms of her hiring these anonymous um, photoshoppers, kind of adding the baby in um, to be held by the mother and thinking that that's just this magical thinking um, connected to the history of, of photography. And then the thermal video of her of her infant son, sort of rain, yes. rainbow coloring, and how um, you know early X-rays were connected with like magical beliefs that mm-hmm. the eye can't see everything, and so we're going to be able to kind of use a machine to see what the eye can't see. Um, so this is sort of like it was like an afterburn. You know, I saw the show and I was kind of like, hmm, I don't know, and then it kind of sat with me, and um, all of these other kind of issues came up. Yeah, there are a lot of components to put together. Um, and so one, one is left sometimes to wonder, is this an installation with many, many ingredients? Or is this a bit like just a commercial gallery show presenting the variety of what this artist can do? Did, did you feel, um, did, any, did anybody feel that there was um, some kind of syntax to the Arrangement through the through the uh, the video of her pregnant and wearing a monkey mask through uh, the phone booth through the internment camp. Is is it? Um, uh, it would be tempting to to feel that, that it can, in a certain way, add up to something compelling. That that. I completely disagree. I thought it was all over the place. Um, I also thought that her methodologies for, for example, she had a series of photographs of her son, and she had one for each day of um, the internment of her father. I, I didn't see what's the connection. If you didn't have the backstory, you wouldn't understand the conceptual grid of the photographs. When you heard the um, you know, repeated voice of the mother, you thought of, you know, the old um, answering machines that you would call into and these, you know, outmoded um, forms of phone booths. But she sort of just mashed these things together and it didn't really seem to have any Hmm. resonance. Um, When you looked at um, the images of random photoshopping, you get some historical revisionism um, and um, the idea of strangers sort of um, intervening. But why that methodology doesn't seem to really um, fall into place. So I think she touched on very um, substantial, substantial themes and problems and you know ideas, but I don't think she carried them through. Right. The the phone booth piece. Um, I think she, she what she's done is she's extracted the end of each message. So she's, as it were, keen to spare us the the quotidian, or perhaps it's the the two personal content of each message and it becomes this uh, this this uh, this repeated structure so it becomes a little bit I've noticed with uh, Leslie Tonkinow's shows that um, it's fun how you or fun uh, interesting how you can really see a c- certain gallerists have a very particular sensibility and um, Leslie Tonkinow clearly has a thing for the grid 
Um, <laughs> even the um, really interesting artist she'd rediscovered and was, was showing at the um, ADAA last week was um, uh, a, a, a gridular um, um, uh, display. Um, and um, uh, Agnes, Dennis, and others we've seen in, in, in that space before um, adhere to the grid. And it's, a, it's a, this, there's something a little structuralist about taking the last snippet of each message, I love you, see you later, come back to me, I love you, blah, blah, blah. Um, this, this uh, um, a little bit like the Beckers, Arn, um, uh, Hild and Bern Beck, uh, Bernard and Hild, Hild, uh, the Beckers going around photographing every gasometer in, uh, in, in Westphalia. Well, it's, this, this time it's every goodbye, I love you from mother. Um, it's it's um, a structural sort of thing, isn't it? I, I felt like that the payphone piece was the most kind of, um, given that the show was sort of about this like emotional, you know, psychological loss of parents, and then she's a you know she's a new mother, and sort of juxtaposing loss with um, you know I guess trying to in, in invest meaning into like her offspring, but that that piece was just kind of summed it up for me like it, it was very um alienating sad beautiful longing it had some content to it whereas i felt like this repetition of the um the snapshots weren't really yeah accumulating meaning in the same way right i think you brought up a good point about the personal it was very diaristic it was very um personal memoir and the viewer didn't have an entryway into these memories, into these sort of personal moments. Um, it was almost like a collection of, you know, someone's snapshots or someone's diaries, but the next step that the artist needs to follow through is bringing the viewer into that space, and I don't feel that it was successfully accomplished. Right, right. I'm curious what um, you all thought of the piece that you saw as soon as you walked in, which was that book with the bullet hole through it, which didn't seem to have any relationship at all to what else was in the show. Um, and I'm trying to remember now when I saw the show and whether it was before or after Parkland, but I was uh, reviewing all the images I took, and, and that one just jumped out at me as really um, you know, very striking and very strong when it didn't, it didn't strike me that way um, that when I saw it in in right. the gallery that, that piece really seemed to stick out like it didn't really feel yeah. like it belonged but i just thought of um like chris burden i didn't know maybe it was some type of you know a compilation that mm -hmm. you know that she was destroying or breaking up yeah, we don't but, know what was in the book we can exactly. yeah mm -hmm. yeah curious yeah it, it it does seem like throwing in everything that's to hand that might uh might eventually cohere once it's in a show, rather than that that compelling syntax that I was yearning for and not quite finding in the show. But um, well, let's hope as Junior uh, gains his independence that um, <laughs> Mother will go out and take some more um, outrageous risks and um, give us some of the uh, early magic that. Um, made her such an interesting artist to so many people. Let's turn our attention now, and we can have the next slide presentation, please, to, um, to, to uh, uh, Jeffrey, to Mariam Jeffrey, uh, showing at uh, Kai Matsumaya Gallery on the Lower East Side. Um, I don't think there's any lack of syntax with this show. <laughs> um, it's, uh, um, we, uh, 
I had the uh, privilege of a personal guided tour from the dealer. Uh, I don't think dealer is quite a word for a, a gallery that's hardly Gagosian, but um, uh, it's uh, a very politically oriented and, and, and impassioned gallery. And um, uh, we got into a bit of an argument, but that, that can happen. <laughs> um, <laughs> Perhaps I should have recorded that and um, put that into the, uh, uh, the video. It was an amusing exchange about th the term Orientalism. But we might come on to that later. Um, is anyone a crossword puzzler? Anyone, anyone like doing crosswords? Anyone? Oh, you're a, I, you know, I kind of... It's, it's terrible to stereotype, but <laughs> as I asked the question, I thought, Tom is going to put his hand up. He looks like, <laughs> he's the kind of guy who likes to crosswords. Did you do the crossword? Yeah, I yeah. solved it, yeah. Ah. Um, and it was an odd one because it had a lot of two-letter words, which you don't usually see. Right. Um, and um, part of my problem with the show is that uh, you were talking about methodology with the previous one. Um, there wasn't a real coherence between what was uh, the, the answers in the crossword puzzle, there wasn't a real coherence between that and the books that were displayed in the blank spaces. Mm. Um, and, and so it was sort of like you, you know, got to the end of this path and you thought you were going to get a, you know, a surprise revelation and there really wasn't. It was kind of you know, a typical selection of political and, and, and pop political books and a, uh, and a uh, cross-section of uh, some political and historical terms and some filler, and that was basically it. Um, and it it took up, uh, obviously, the most real estate in the gallery, but the only piece in that show I thought more about after I left it was the uh, video of the um, military captain teaching meditation. Yeah. Um, and you know, of course, it has an irony. You could drive a truck through, but um, I felt that um, the the fact that she had left uh, that video kind of just to exist on its own mm -hmm. um, maybe trusted the viewer uh, too much, or it just seemed to me that you know, what was the point? Was the point that um, just the fact that soldiers were being taught meditation was ironic in itself as a preparation for combat, or you know was she relating it? And, and afterwards, I read interviews with with her, and she sounds like a really fascinating artist. She did a uh, a series called The Siege of Khartoum about simp about um, mm -hmm. uh, Western invasions of Middle Eastern Asian countries. And so this seemed to connect uh, very strongly to that line of thinking, but nothing else in the show connected that video to that line of thinking. I felt the show was rather scattershot and rather opaque. Right, right. Um, yeah, uh, Karen, that actually was the, the cause of my argument with, with Kai, was, was um, um, uh, his deconstruction I don't want to represent someone else's opinion in order to knock it down. That's not terribly ethical. But um, it's, it's, I think his attitude in our conversation probably does represent uh, the artist's intention with that piece um, in that 
the incongruity of a, a white American uh, in uniform um, teaching the the essence of Buddhism, the, the non-violence, um, was sort of explicit, implicit enough for the artist for, to, to think that the work would, would therefore be ironic and would therefore be ammunition in her um, deconstructive assault on um, the whole wellness industrial complex. Well, I don't think it was necessarily an assault or a critique. I think she was just bringing up this phenomenon of um, wellness and the intersection with the healthcare um, complex and the idea that this is a like a three point seven billion dollar industry, and that you know Western ideologies are absorbing uh, Eastern philosophies and holistic um, systems of thought. And I think that she was talking about wellness also as being sort of uh, a bomb in a politically challenging um, environment and that self-care and wellness is something that has to be attended to in relationship to the use of the crossword puzzle as a way of embedding a political statement into something that's very sort of, you know, culturally pop and sort of neutralized. And I think that, um, you know, in the collaboration with um, Tosig, I think that she was also talking about the very importance of the First Amendment, the selected New York Times um, books that she embedded into the crossword puzzle, all were selected by the Times to sort of highlight the kind of um, political climate that we're um, living in, echoing like democracy dies in darkness, the tagline of the um, Washington Post. So I think she was really talking about spaces that you could utilize in mass media in order to critique you know, the cu current political system and that wellness could be also um, instrumentalized as a tool for self-care. Mm -hmm. Do you buy that? Um, well, I have to say that I hate, I hate to see books in an installation. I hate to walk into an installation. It's like, here's some books, and this is like a stand-in for ideas. Um, so just like a disclaimer, that's just something that, that I have a, a, a rough time with, because I'd rather read the book. With or without bullet holes. You don't like right. But, you know, spending a little more time with the ideas, I, I, I guess I was sort of connecting the, the leisure time activity of the crossword puzzle with the sort of dystopian message of the crossword puzzle. Mm. Um, and then learning a little more about the video. Here's this Buddhist chaplain in the military. Mm. And my first thought was he's um, coaching uh, soldiers through PTSD. It's not the case. He's coaching them, uh, getting them ready for their role as soldiers in battle. So, you know, another kind of, um, you know, uh, opposition, um, wellness versus preparation for battle. And then the pieces in the back room, you know, I think visually it was hard to connect them all, but conceptually, okay, it's like, um, you know, easy to consume capitalist wellness, capitalist leisure time, capitalist uh, relaxation techniques, um, co-opted, commodified, and then, um, you know, in this mm. uh, dystopian kind of context. Visually, it didn't do it for me, but then, you know, 
well, she's not wrong <laughs> about the world as a doomer, right. I think. Right. <laughs> I thought it was very topical and very timely. I just, I really, it really um, resonated. I thought that some, there were three parts, and I think that, um, you know, there were three distinct parts, but they actually did work together. And I like those Gober-esque waxed, you know, uh, body parts. And to think about, you know, how um, Western culture absorbs like Eastern philosophy and it becomes sort of, you know, cult-like and, you know, the idea of like soul cycle and all of these sort of, you know, taking parts of uh, these like Eastern practices and um, making them into either you know, healthcare, exercise, spa, um, culture. It's like something that's t definitely in the air that I think it's she like really the, seized upon. The giant blob of capitalism just absorbing everything, commodifying everything, I feel like. I wondered if it was too large a topic. I mean, it seemed like she was biting off more than she could chew. It just seemed like it was too large a topic to um, squeeze into those two tiny rooms. And um, and so it, it kind of... Let you know, I kind of felt sort of outside looking in, and there were things about the actual objects I had problems with uh, because there were some, there were those um, glass uh, suction cups, yes. and it was really hard to see what was inside of them. I mean, it just was visually wasn't clear. It took me a while to realize that the photograph of somebody with those on his chest actually were containing leeches. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's Phelps. That's um, that's the Olympic swimmer. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you, the 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 privilege of getting the personalized guided tour is that um, uh, Kai was able to take one of those eggs out of the carton oh. and and show me that it was in fact Mark Phelps, and that um, uh, uh, and then he 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 told me how um, uh, Phelps would come in with his shirt on, which is unusual for a swimmer, in order to take the shirt off when. Mark Phelps USA was announced so that mm -hmm. um, show his wonderful biceps, but also um, his suction wounds, as it were. Huh. So it's cupping. Cupping. Yeah. yeah. Yes. A cupping treatment. A cupping treatment. Yeah. Um, so, so you, you, you. Somebody said that they liked the Gober. You liked the Gober-esque waxiness. Um, that's a well-worn trope, though, isn't it? I mean, I, is, what, what's it really saying? What's it being used for, I wonder? I think Can she was highlighting the, the um, techniques, the acupuncture techniques. And um, mm. I also liked that takeaway of the puzzle, that you could take it out of the gallery and you could, you know, remind me a little bit of the Felix Gonzalez-Torres, you know, takeaway stack. So, and this collaboration with... Um, mm a constructor of a crossword puzzles. I thought that was an interesting for an artist to bring in someone like that into a project uh, such as this. So I thought there was a lot going on. And I thought that for that small space, uh, I think she you know, got her point across. Um, I think there's a lot in the topic. But I think she, um, you know, she addressed it from different perspectives, you know, with the with the puzzle, with the books, the First Amendment issues, the idea of investigative journalism being exceedingly important now, the idea of the military utilizing these kind of meditation, you know, techniques, and then also, you know, the use of um, non-Western and alternative medicine in healthcare. I think, you know, she she tackled a lot. Mm -hmm. in, a, in a very small space, and I thought it was thoughtful. In terms of the, the wax um, feet and hands, um, 
which actually look more lifelike in the photograph than they did in person, I felt. Um, I'm not familiar enough with acupuncture to know if those are actually acupuncture spots in the soles of the feet. They didn't kind of look it to me. I mean, I asked if that was accurate and was assured that this was an artist who does her homework, but... Um, it just seemed like, they, you know, it was presented to freak you yes. out more than to... Mm, mm. Uh, be an accurate representation of acupuncture, but I'm speaking. I have a ears. feeling it was accurate. Accurate. I mean, it seems uh. like she's an artist who does a lot of her research. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, I thought the most successful piece was self care, which was a toilet paper holder with instead of toilet paper, the yoga mat. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's like funny. You get it. It's a sort of surrealist object, and you kind of. I feel like the critique is embedded in that, and it has some wit to it and and visual interest. To me, as yeah. as an object appreciator, <laughs> I yeah. liked that piece. Yeah. yeah, but then I was confused about why a yoga mat was also used to wrap around the yes, arm the, of the two mm-hmm. the fisting hands. Yes, yes. Uh, yes, exactly. Um, so it seemed like there was some kind of cross Bandage, purposes. Yeah. There was, it was the, the, that that particular material was used in mm-hmm. two conflicting ways that I didn't quite plumb. It's as if she likes the material too much to only use right. it once because the the, <laughs> the the iteration of the Goba-esque kind of greasy, waxy feet and whatever it it's all over the place and it's uh, it's being used to a very different effect in different places as if um, as if she she can't let go of t- too compelling an idea. Um, I wasn't so convinced. I mean, you guys seem to be quite on board with and 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 convinced by her her critique of of the wellness industrial complex. Um, it, it seems to me, uh, you know, the the Buddhist chaplain um, I found inherently interesting. I, I mean, I, I was just actually listening to his mm-hmm. his uh, dharma. I mean, it, it um, he he's clearly. Uh, a, a monk. I mean, he's clearly ordained, and he's being used as a chaplain in the army. And he's the only Buddhist. He explains that he's the only Buddhist, and that there's only one soldier that he's directly um, chaplain. Uh, his his congregant, so to speak. But that this seminar was of this this meditation could be of use and interest to everybody, and how Buddhism is a skill set, and um, uh, kind of makes sense. Um, now, we're just supposed to believe, I mean, I think that the artist assumes that the audience is so uh, hypercritical and, um, um, and also um, anti-US military that the, the irony is just so blatant and overwhelming, but it kind of isn't. Why, why is it any more inherently wrong to have a Buddhist chaplain than a Christian chaplain? I mean, Christianity is also ostensibly a religion of peace. Uh, Buddhists have trained samurai warriors for many centuries. So they're all hypocrites. Is that what you mean? (laughs) Um, Well, it it means that uh, actually uh, somebody who is... uh, uh, You could say anyone who's practicing any religion that that, that preaches peace uh, and is joining an army is a quote-unquote hypocrite, or you can view it that... Uh, these religions are 
potentially at the service of uh, anybody who thinks they're doing the right thing. I mean, I think it's an interesting point because I, I was looking into uh, you know, certain um, Buddhist soldiers, like what, how do they justify um, and, and make sense of this? And they, they kind of reach back to an ancient history. There's talk about war. There's talk about battle and like, you know, battling for something good, protecting, you know, the people you love, protecting your country, protecting an idea and sort of invoking like ancient ancient battle philosophy, I guess. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, 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 it's, that, isn't that hard to, isn't that hard to swallow? Isn't that kind of... No, no harder than a Christian soldier. I don't see why it's any no, harder. It's, it's, it, maybe it's not, but it's just, it all, to me, it all just feels... Maybe you have an Orientalist view. There's actually an article in the Times today <laughs> about, that says, why do we have such trouble understanding how Buddhists can be violent? And so, in fact, um, maybe you have an Orient... Maybe you're actually... Uh, susceptible to the thing that you're critiquing because you actually have a rather sentimental notion that Buddhists are better than us. I, I, and, and I think I do. Yeah. I would agree with that. But also, I just think, you know, anyone can reach back into the past and say 3,000 years ago it seemed better to kill people than it does now. It's just, mm. I, I guess I just feel like this, the, all of these ideas, maybe Christianity is already polluted we know that and so um, Buddhism is a sort of slightly more like oh it's a little more we're a little more precious about that and yeah if we're if we're um, if we are <laughs> Western uh, atheist artists we can think <laughs> that Buddhism is a little better than Christianity <laughs> but there are a lot of people out there who are Christians or sure. Buddhists who think that actually there's some sure. some life left in those ideologies and that maybe it's <laughs> actually the avant-garde art world that needs to look at itself a little uh, maybe you might have a point there yeah, but I, but uh, getting back to the art rather than the ideology, just just having that sermon follow you around while you're looking at the whole show, mm -hmm. um, the guy seems like a bit of a mensch. I mean, he's he's uh, he, he explains uh, what what it's about in very intelligent, lucid ways, uh, and it's like any preaching of the the Dharma. If you you're at all curious about it or have attempted to practice it at all. Whenever you hear it exposed uh, skillfully, uh, it's a little bit of a reminder of it. And therefore, I, I, I think that she assumes that the irony is what's going to follow us around the room, mm -hmm. whereas perversely enough, it might actually be um, the Dharma that's following us around the room. Mm. Well, I think it's like a visually sort of shocking um, visual bite to see like a soldier, you know, dressed in military uniform, you know, meditating or leading uh, a meditation session. I mean, right away, that's going to sort of like, you know, the irony is really hits you over the head, but, you know, it's very um, sharp and it makes you, you know, want to learn more about um, his approach and um, how he's able to hold these two, you know, disparate ideas in his mind at once. I mean, I think that's something that really interested me. I thought about that a lot. And then um, I also. But would you find him? Uh, more interesting to talk to or the artist on this subject? Well, I think that the artist just sort of, you know, used that, you know, that um, session to make that point. And I think it was an effective way to do so. And I think the overarching... The teddy bears? The overarching theme really is this kind of Western appropriation of these non-Western, like, techniques in terms of health and wellness in general. Um, getting back to your question about whether or not we feel that um, Buddhism is more pacifist than other religions. I mean, our 
I think our pop in the popular imagination, going back to the Vietnam War, is nonviolent resistance and self-immolation, mm. uh, and I think that's what and uh, I think that's what um, sticks in our minds when we think about Buddhist monks, you know, getting yeah. beaten as they you know sit in silent protest, etc. And so, actually, what what I found most found most surprising uh, about that video is that I, when I came to it, it was um, the frame was filled by just the captain who was doing his talk. And I'm watching, 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 and thinking, who's he talking to and how many are there? And I thought he would have, you know, four or five people in front of him. And there were like 20, 25 mm. soldiers who pretty much filled the room they were in. And, and essentially, it's not just soldiers. It's also, it's, it looks like some Iraqi workers are also, mm, right. uh, yeah. you know, just just joining in. Right. And, um, 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 the, on that altar, we have various... Uh, stuffed toy Buddhas. Mm -hmm. And um, that seems to be uh, implying um, the, the specter of Orientalism. Um, but in fact, those toys are, um, those toys have been produced obviously in Asia for Asian consumption. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's fair to assume. So I don't quite know what she was really saying or doing with those objects. I think that was a problem with the with the installation. I didn't either, and um, and I would have liked to have gotten some kind of sense mm. from that setup what her intention was in those cartoonish mm. Buddhas, because the video was playing it straight, but the yes. dolls weren't, right. and and so I would have liked some kind of context mm. to tie it all together. I can agree with you there. Those sort of threw me for a loop a bit. I mean, they were interesting. I think, as you said, she likes objects. She likes the materiality. Yes. She likes, Which, you know, and as objects, mm -hmm. they were really interesting and they did relate yeah. to the topic, but it wasn't, the connection wasn't um, obvious. Mm -hmm. My fear is slightly that she likes the look and feel of avant-garde, conceptual, cutting-edge art, and that she'll... Um, help herself to the, the look and feel of something that Robert Gober might have done, something that Felix might have done, etc. Kelly. Uh, something that Mike Kelly might do. That there's actually kind of just a language that she's cherry-picking to give the veneer of being conceptual. But uh, those other artists so totally think through and make through mm -hmm. uh, their, their objects I, that, uh, in, a, in a compelling way. And I totally her, agree. she, I think, ironically, she is doing with conceptual art uh, what she's critiquing the Western um, military and health industries for doing with um, Eastern um, meditation practice. I think she's just juxtaposing things. It'll be like, you know, wellness mm. war, no, no. leisure. Please like... come with me to actually really <laughs> investigate what she is doing and is not doing with the language that she's appropriating. Well, I think, that, I think the objects and the installations she's making just mm. merely tense things up against each other and they're not kind of, they don't create a third thing. It's right. here's this, uh, here's that, and there's, right. there's not a kind of way through or... Um, um, you know, a kind of interesting um, critique or or narrative or psychological perspective embedded in the object or the experience of, you know, being in, in the installations. Cool. Fair enough. Um, audience, I think it's time for, to hear from you on both um, Laurel Nakadaki 
Nakadaki and um, on um, uh, Mariam Jaffrey. Um, we should have a mic that's going round. Do we? How's our mic doing? Is it here? Oh, Mike is here. Hi, Mike. Good. Um, so um, it doesn't matter which order. Um, well, happy to have some some comments, some rallying defence of um, either or both artists, or further critique. Uh, just just to remind you all, I'm that perverse moderator who prefers <laughs> comments to questions because we're taking a break here. You see, <laughs> we, we want to hear what you guys have got to say and what you think. There's an there's an arm that's going up there. Waiting patiently. Mike is on its way. Hello. Um, uh, with the the first show, uh, Laurel Nakadati, um, I, I was wondering. Uh, it, it made me think of something that I was reading on the New York Times website today, which was a really uh, frightening article about uh, video manipulation. Um, and uh, how easy the tech, how rapidly the technology is changing, so that very soon we're going to be seeing um, fake news videos, uh, and conceivably a political candidate could that could be video ads of him or her saying something that you know that's totally fake, um, and it made me wonder if part of the the problem with with the response to her show is the technology itself, which, uh, in other words, that Photoshop um, is kind of uh, not old enough and not forward-looking enough as a technology. Um, and uh, this is a question for any of you to, to comment on. Do you, do you think, for example, if um, if the baby had been just root, uh, crudely collaged onto the photos, could that have um, engendered a different response. Uh, so Photoshop is not sexy, and also for that matter, um, for that matter, the idea of harvesting anonymous collaboration on the internet may not be that sexy at this point either. So, right, it's a well-worn conceptual yeah. strategy. Yes, good points. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, uh, in the row in front. Yes, could you wait for the mic, uh, red-headed lady? No. Oh, you're just, uh, just airing your nails. Okay, fine. I would be curious to get a response to that, though. Ah, okay. Huh. Well, let's, let's give you a response to that. So the, the, the questions are, uh, the, the comments are really that um, A, or rather B, is that um, it's now a little bit well-worn or shop-soiled to uh, make a big issue out of going on the internet and finding collaborators. I mean, one thinks of uh, Alan McCollum, for instance, sending out um, uh, designs and notions to be made by cottage industries out in Maine um, for his, his uh, computer-generated shapes, etc. Um, it, it could be said to be the, the internet age equivalent of um, artists from Donald Judd onwards finding uh, fabricators to make their work for them. Um, uh, so well, so well worn as just to be no longer newsworthy. And the the first point, however, is that um, Photoshop too seamless wouldn't some crude collage make the point more? We, with crude collage, we would get the point perhaps without the backstory more. Well, uh, a lot of those photos were pretty crude. Yeah, I thought um, very awkward. Enough, yes. There yeah. were only about a. 
I, I took photos of the ones I thought were most compelling and, and most convincing, and there are only about a half a dozen at best. And um, and even then, you you know, one look at them, you knew that the baby really didn't belong there. Maybe one. I think there was one of the, of, of the the mother and an unidentified man in a in a room with a giant statue of Jesus, and that one really the kid looked like a solid presence in in the room. But I think that was the only one. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Adam, I think that the point you're you're making is that with these new with this new video technology, there isn't a um, there's a breakdown of distance between, there's a breakdown of mediation between um, the object and the viewer. We are, the, the idea of truth is is completely blurred, while with Photoshop, someone who's attuned well enough will always see through it. Um, and I wonder if, as with the airbrushing of photographs in the old Soviet Union, um, after our eyes get used to these videos, we'll begin to see the fault lines. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's something that time will tell. But in the meantime, they could be thrown out as evidence in court, which is, I think, I'm not sure if I read the same article that you did, but there was one a couple of days ago in digital that um, talked about that as one of the possible consequences of this new technology. Mm. Mm. I also don't think necessarily it was her intention of sort of trying to trick the eye of the viewer. I think we're so acclimated to Photoshop now. It's like we're, we're, we know that things have been, you know, um, Photoshop's been used. You can decipher whether it's been it's seamless or not. Um, I, I don't understand why she would take something so personal and throw that out to like an anonymous public. And also with, you know, things that are happening about the internet and, you know, children and internet and exposure. I don't know, it doesn't seem like a a choice that um, really makes sense for the material she's dealing with and why it has to be a random stranger, you know, merging these two images. It's just- Well, it's kind of of a piece with her performance work. Yeah, with her early work. Uh, But um, I felt it was kind of a, I don't know, a lame way to use it because he's not interacting with them personally, and um, and yeah, I mean she is distributing this f- precious photos of herself, of her mother and her child, but they look like any other photos on the internet too. It's not like she's really exposing herself with this. So it was, it was I think it was muddled. Yes. Thanks. Hi. Um, I thought it was interesting, you know, when you're when you're all talking about the, um, like the 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 fetishization and the you know fashionability that was created out of this idea of wellness uh, in Miriam Jaffrey's show. Um, as I saw the objects going around more and more, I haven't seen the show, show in person. Um, you know, they started becoming very uh, sexualized for me, like sexual fetish objects. Um, and then when you looked at her use of material. Um, you know, it really was echoing things that you'd see like in S and M. Like, like, like. There's cupping. There's, uh, you know, needles. There's binding and wrapping of, you know, arms. And then um, the, uh, and then even even like the uh, the objects of, of of the body, you know, started referencing like you know sex dolls for me. So that was interesting. It became more purposeful um, when I saw this, uh, you know, this kind of cohesion as the uh, as the images were going around of this idea of. Um, uh, fetishization of wellness and also sexual fetishization. 
Mm. Um, I don't know if any of you yes, felt well, that, that way about it. There's a piece called Schadenfreude, which has two arms. It's right, and then it immediately looked like a mm. double-ended That, that actually though. is from a, a sex shop, <laughs> uh, oh, okay. an online Chinese um, uh, sex shop, when they are uh, fists in different positions for... Um, right. Don't try this at home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't try this at home. <laughs> Perhaps it should be the health hazard. Well, you're, you're touching on a point which is I was alluding to when I said that I felt that she's a more interesting artist than the show would lead you to believe because she did do a, a film. I want to say it's a one-word title. I think it was Anthem, but I could be totally wrong. In which she, it's about um, factory workers, I forget which Asian country, um, who make... S&M um, merchandise, mm-hmm. but they don't know that's what they're doing. They're, they're told it's for the military or for something else. They don't know what it is while they're making it. I, th- I thought that was a fascinating idea for a piece, um, but it's lost in, in, in this show. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Yes. Good. I think, unless it's, uh, uh, we, I think we should move on to part two now. We'll uh, look at the, our videos of... Um, Ankle Otero and Carrie Moya. The lead sponsor of Ankel Otero Elegies at the Bronx Museum is the Daedalus Foundation, created through the legacy of abstract expressionist painter Robert Motherwell, which is a matter of significance because in this body of work, some made exclusively for this exhibition, Otero directly channels the more than 100 paintings by Motherwell, which Motherwell titled Elegies. Motherwell created his mostly monochrome canvases as a lamentation or funeral song on the subject of the Spanish Civil War. Every intelligent painter carries the whole culture of modern painting in his head, Motherwell once said. It is the real subject of which everything he paints is both an homage and a critique, and everything he says is a gloss. But as the exhibition's curator Christian Viveros Fonet argues, the work of Puerto Rican-born Ankel Otero has produced for the Bronx Museum are not elegies in the typical sense, that's to say paintings devoted to the idea of loss or deterioration. Instead, he argues, These works are celebrations of 21st century painterly innovation and of the resilience of art during times of change. Pagan's Rapture is Carrie Moyer's second exhibition with DC Moore Gallery and her first since the 2017 Whitney Biennial in which she participated. A complimentary exhibition at Mary Boone Gallery opened just last week, too late alas for direct consideration at this evening's panel. Mia Locks, the co-curator of the biennial, is the author of the catalogue essay for Moyer's DC Moore show, where she writes, Since the early 1990s, Carrie Moyer's work has examined the politics of representation. But where it once sought to communicate directly and urgently, as with her agitprop projects in collaboration with Sue Schaffner under the moniker Dyke Action Machine, it has entered a slower, more poetic phase in recent years. Her paintings, exhibited at the Tang Museum in 2013, for instance, 
as well as those in the biennial, are whimsically exuberant, bright, abstract compositions with voluptuous lines and sparkling surfaces, evoking moods rather than making declarative statements and refusing easy definitions. I would like to have mentioned in the film also, you saw a wall in uh, Ankle Otero's um, installation at the Bronx Museum of six works on paper in black frames, that in fact uh, three of them are lent uh, from the Daedalus Foundation and are, uh, two of them are, are prints by Motherwell and one is a, uh, a work that uh, takes some sentences from uh, Harold Rosenberg's essay on action painting and uh, inscribes them uh, into the image and the other three are um, works from this Elegies series by um, Ankel. So I, I wonder if we could um, get our bearings on what the real relationship is between um, Otero and Motherwell. Um, would you take a stab on that one, Jennifer? Uh, well, I guess I was curious. I mean, I know that he works, um, Otero works from um, art history, 20th century uh, history of painting, Poussin, he's, he's talked about kind of starting with very specific works of art and specific artists and kind of building um, his uh, language, making oil skins on top of these works. And I, I wasn't sure, was he responding directly to uh, Robert Motherwell's pieces or was that a juxtaposition that Christian uh, set up. That was not something that I was able to kind of uh, glean from the. It was my impression that he was. I'm not sure if he was commissioned, but the idea was proposed to him to mm. do a series based on the elegies for uh, the Spanish Republic. So he was working. It was Christian um, Viveros Fane, who was a critic, and he approached Angel Otero and asked him if he would like to, like, in seeing his work, mm -hmm. he saw a connection, mm -hmm. and then they sort of collaborated, okay. which I thought was a really interesting jumping off point. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that the work is necessarily about Motherwell, but as Motherwell is being a key figure mm -hmm. in, in modernism, mm -hmm. that. Um, you know, it was a touchstone mm -hmm. for um, the project. So if it's not really about Motherwell, is it really about Otero? Is this the, uh, dare, one, dare one artist even ask the question, or is it, does it reveal one as being old-fashioned and missing the point to say, is, uh, is this where Otero is usually? Is this, is, is this what, is this typical Otero? Or is, I, is I, Otero's sort of conceptually driven one by one taking on a different artist? Well, it seems to me he's he's in conversation with abstract expressionism, sort of like heroic male, um, you know, abstract expressionist artists in particular. Um, and, um, you know, I guess it was interesting to me to think he's, he's kind of looking back to Motherwell and Motherwell was looking back to Guernica, to Picasso's take yeah. on the... Um, on the war, and I, th I think there's a little bit of that, putting himself in, in a lineage. Um, yeah. I think it's definitely the way that he works. His working strategy is to sort of interrogate the history of art, the history of painting, and sort of go through these key figures, and Motherwell is like, you know, 
a more contemporary and abstract expressionist New York School figure that he has to go through um, in order to like in order to create his art. And so I think he was sort of just using uh, Motherwell as a jumping off point and the idea of elegy, the idea of history, the idea of memory in formal ways and also in historical ways he embeds in his work and he, he creates a new vocabulary and a new way of approaching painting mm -hmm. in a contemporary context. But of course, um, the Abex, Abex artists themselves can be seen to have gone through a similar process if you think about Gorky's um, almost torturous apprenticeship to Picasso as well as to um, Miro and Kandinsky, but particularly Picasso in those um, early paintings of his um, based on the photograph of himself and his mother. So um, the, the, the um, uh, apprentice slash Oedipal kind of relationship of um, modern artists to historic forebears is so, so entrenched that um, I'm, trying, I'm having trouble sorting out the kind of the taxonomy here of, of whether Otero is offering a kind of postmodern uh, riff on um, earlier art, or uh, whether he is uh, generating um, his own authenticity through some kind of um, uh, uh, either homage or deconstruction of um, a historic forebear. What, what's, what's, his, uh, what's his goal? Well, I felt that he, he was really I think I think his I think his goal is formalist. I think that he was taking off from the shapes in the elegy, Motherwell's elegy paintings, the ovals and the slashes, and who knows what his studio process was. But it seemed as if those were further overused, were deconstructed by cutting them and rearranging them. I mean, I thought more about elizabeth murray about um lee krasner's uh collage paintings uh than i did about um than i did and and, and Atsui, than i did about motherwell when i was looking at them mm. um and uh and i i it was the show among all the four of them that i enjoyed the most um it and because i'm someone who always kind of turns the critical eye back on myself, I wondered, I began to doubt whether it was because it was too ingratiating, that it was, it was too, you know, old religion, uh, old-time religion, um, um, abstract painting. Um, and so I, I was left with those doubts, though I felt it was a very strong show. Right. Did you enjoy the paintings? I thought it was brilliant. Um exhibition. I thought in the installation, uh, the insertion of the Motherwell pieces, it became almost like a total artwork installation. And it was almost an appropriation um, strategy, I thought, in including the Motherwell into um, the installation. And likewise, um, the idea of sort of, yes, he's inserting himself into art history and into this lineage, but at the same time, he's recreating a whole new way of making paintings. Those paintings were um, also 
old paintings of his from his right. archive, and also the idea of taking literally Greenberg's idea of materiality of the paint. He paints on a plexiglass or glass surface, mm -hmm. and he makes oil skin, so it's literally, he's painting and cutting in almost like a Matisse cutout manner um, from old paintings that he's made about um, like discarded works about even old masters, not only 20th century figures, and then reconfiguring them in a way that is hybridized and it's almost sculptural in a way. It's almost, it refers to textile, it refers to tapestry. So mm -hmm. he's doing something inventive and new, you know, with this whole tradition of um, modern painting or painting, the history of painting itself. I'm glad you clarified that because I, by the term oilskins, made me think that he did paint on glass or something uh, resistant and peeled it off. But I was looking, I actually, you know, crept behind a little bit to see what was behind, what was backing those oilskins, and it was some kind of black fabric. So I wasn't sure what exactly I was looking at, whether the fabric had to be there just to hold the thing together that he glued it on. So he's working on a type of, he's working on the horizontal plane. So mm -hmm. he's also like referring to the abstract, you know, gestures of like Pollock. So he's working on the, on the horizontal plane. And then it's almost like a scaffolding that he is mm -hmm. sort of, um, you know, sewing the um, skins on okay. to. Okay. These strategies, so, however, are not entirely uh, invented. I mean, obviously Lee Krasner, uh, made a, a whole body of work by uh, cannibalizing her own earlier drawings, which were then used in collages. And uh, the contemporary artist Leslie Wayne um, uh, makes almost sculptural relief uh, paintings by sort of pulling, um, by, by working with these skeins of, of, of paint, which uh, are then the, um, the collaged components of the, the finished results. Um, the, there's a whole also a set of references, and I wonder if you, I, I wonder if they are references or merely working within the tradition of, or perhaps even appropriations, that um, one thinks, I, I thought of, say, um, Al Loving and, and, and other painters, um, uh, Joe Overstreet, whose, whose work we're, is being rediscovered at the moment, um, and uh, um, Alan Shields and, and, and other artists who, who sort of took painting off the wall mm -hmm. um, in um, um, this, the, the, or even Robert Morris's felt pieces perhaps come to mind a bit in these, these big dramatic um, uh, wonky tapestries. Did you, did you get any of those vibes, Jennifer? Um, yeah, but I, I think that um, I just wanted to respond to something that Tom said earlier. I'm invoking like Lee Krasner and um, uh, who was the other female artist you uh, invoked? The, um, Elizabeth Murray? Yeah, mm. Elizabeth Murray. I definitely thought of her. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I feel like I, I loved I loved his pieces. I thought they were they were beautiful and they were about definitely about skin, about the body, about kind of scoring, scratching, urban detritus that made me think of like uh, Mimo Rotella, um, you know, kind of. Yeah, he comes to mind, doesn't yeah. he? Torn posters. But I, 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 I feel like his work could have easily been um, situated in relation to a female artist. Like why just the kind of canonical, you know, m m white male, um, you know, abstract expressionist artist. And I, I just couldn't help it but think that um, it was nothing to take away from, from the work and, and, and every, all the decisions he was making, but I didn't like the kind of self-mythologizing, like the need to kind of situate himself within this, you know, well-trodden kind of um, canon, I guess. Perhaps it gets you the Daedalus uh, sponsorship. <laughs> so, uh, 
job. When you mentioned um, uh, Leslie Wayne, it kind of tied a loose end together for me because uh, Leslie's paintings are, are pretty much a critique of the object and a critique of the image. And I didn't feel this was that was going on in Otero's work, mm-hmm. and and that's why I couldn't. I mean, it, it's on the surface postmodern, but it struck struck me as modernist, not yeah. postmodern. It seems to be post postmodern. It seems to be post postmodern because, in fact, uh, um, uh, yeah, there's a little frisson of um, uh, of of a play with a past reputation, but but essentially, this guy is having fun and making images mm-hmm. and. Um, uh, the fact that he's cannibalizing himself is, um, don't all artists ultimately really do that anyway? Um, um, yeah, they seem to be, uh, they seem to hold up as, as, uh, as late Abex paintings rather than as um, uh, something that forces a rethink of Abex or, um, um, but I, my takeaway from the show was that I wanted to see more by the same artist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard him in dialogue with, uh, as, as Karen did, with, with Christian uh, Vivros Fonet, who's a regular on this panel, by the way, um, at the Daedalus Foundation uh, earlier this week. And um, I don't necessarily need and want to hear more from him, but I'd like to see more of him. <laughs> so that was my uh, uh, impression. I thought he talked well about his work. Uh, but I think he does, he's, it's very difficult to have your cake and eat it too. And I think he does pay homage, but at the same time, he pushes the conversation forward. And I think that he, um, you know, it's, it, it's very tricky to be able to, um, you know, walk that high wire. And I think it's um, also interesting to see sort of the voice of a critic in collaboration with an artist. It's like these very tricky, difficult things that um, they managed to pull off. Uh, and that, I, yes, I'd like to see more. And I also like the idea of, as you said, you know, uh, the New York School were these mm. like, you know, swashbuckling, macho, white male um, predominantly. And the work is powerful, it's grandiose. But I thought he paid a tribute to inform because, you know, these these were kind of, you know, tactile and maybe textile-like. And, you know, I think that he changed the discussion uh, a bit. They're surprisingly delicate, too. I mean, I... I I, I noticed that there are there were some sections that were rather subtle, that were actually uh, a very sheer fabric that had some flecks of paint on it, but it, it created this airiness. It wasn't simply the paint's skins; it was also uh, here and there something that was very atmospheric, a fabric that was very atmospheric, and kind of changed the the tone of some of the works. It wasn't in every single one, but in fact, but in the, some of them, the, yeah, thank, yeah, the the. Also, the back and forth with a critic um, between uh, Christian and Ankel, um, in a way, both echoes, but also offers maybe a correction uh, in the um, the more fraught relationship between uh, critic and originators um, in the heyday of the New York School. And in particular, I'm thinking of Greenberg going around studios and telling telling artists to crop things here and turn things around and look at them that way and blah blah blah, um, and that which generated some some degree of uh, suspicion in some qu- some quarters and um, 
creativity and uh, in, in others. And of course, uh, Rosenberg and Mother World had a, a symbiotic relationship um, uh, and a deep friendship that comes out in, uh, it was indeed R Rosenberg who, who first um, planted the notion in, in Motherwell of offering an, uh, um, an elegy to the Spanish Republic. And so therefore it seems fitting that uh, Vivro's Fonet should be a catalyst rather than just a chronicler in uh, um, Otero's adventures. Mm -hmm. I think this is a great segue though from um, from the Bronx Museum downtown to the DC Moore Gallery. <laughs> we can now turn our attention to the, the last show in the uh, evening. And in fact, it's a show, an artist that we've, um, this happens with, as we get old, with, uh, uh, we're in our 13th year, the review panel, uh, with, uh, with uh, uh, increasing frequency, but um, it's actually only a, a few, it's only since we moved to Brooklyn that we were last uh, looking at um, Carrie Moyer's work. This is a different evening, a different show, and different critics, so uh, anything could happen. Um, but perhaps a very different kind of, um, perhaps a more overt and also a, a more driven uh, interrogation dialogue with earlier precedents uh, of modernist abstraction. Um, in uh, Carrie Moyer's appropriations and origina or originations. Um, my first question with her show would be, to what extent do we feel that we're looking at a learned discourse on the history of abstraction compared to to what extent do we just luxuriate in the um, the exuberance and originality of this formal vocabulary. Um, Thomas, let's, let's mm. start with Tom, let's start with you on that one. Um, I have to confess um, that I have a problem with Carrie Moyer's work, and it's, and it's something I haven't been able to really put my finger on, uh, but it's sort of like you have a mutual friend and who's is well liked by many people you respect and you meet that person at a party and you have nothing really to say to her um <laughs> and that's sort of how i i feel about her work i mean i just there are many people i respect a lot who love her work as a matter of fact i just edited a review a very highly laudatory review this afternoon that we're going to run this this saturday um and but with her work and i feel that uh this show um there's something uh, that's, I don't want to say calculated because that's too strong, but there's something definitely constructed about it where the sense of the work is that it should be um, much more spontaneous and free. Mm. And, um, and I'm not sure if it's the large areas of, of monochrome that I feel are too blunt, uh, but I did I began to enjoy the work as I zoomed in on parts and really felt the use of the paint and the glitter and you know her material sense. When I stepped back, the the um, the clash of styles. I didn't. I mean, I I, I just felt the clash of styles didn't uh, create an um, a sensation that 
affected me the way I think it was supposed to. It, it, I, I, I felt more put off by it than excited by it. Oh. Um, uh, Jennifer, can I ask you about the balance between uh, the contrived and the authentic? Well, I, I think what you bring up with this idea of the constructedness of it is, is kind of integral to what she's doing. And I, I've read, I was reading an interview with her where she talks about her history with dance and choreography and that like they are choreographed and they are very much sort of like indirect in a certain way, um, layered, and, and she's sort of setting things up so something can can happen. Um, it's it's not to refute your take on it, but I do think that, that she's... she's operating within this, um, you know, delayed gratification, kind of process-driven, calculated relationship to the material. And I, um, as a fellow acrylic painter, I wonder if it might have something to do with the fast-drying, um, you know, aspect of acrylic paint and that you do really have to kind of layer it. It's not, it's not quite the kind of like in-the-moment experience that you have with oil painting. Um, but yeah, I think you know it's almost like you can see, you can almost see the moves sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Like here's where it's hard edged, and here's the drop shadow, and here's the spill, and here's the texture. Right. And they can be very dramatic and very beautiful, but there are these moments where I feel like I I, I think I know what you did, and right. that takes there was, a little. Yeah, there was one painting. I don't know. I haven't been looking, but there's one painting that was called Brainiac. Mm -hmm. That was sort of like a head, and it had these this purple glittery stuff bursting out of it. And that one I felt was a really discovered painting. Mm -hmm. um, and there was one that... The, the darker one, painting with some glitter in it, is it? That was pretty brightly colored. Ah. But it, was, it didn't have any of the mono, dark monochronic silhouettes in it. Right. It, was, it was very unusual time, yes. for, for the show. And then there was one, the one that as you walk into the large room and it's right here, it... It it had uh, it almost looked like it was hung sideways. It it, it was vertical, oh, yes. but it looked like and it went had this real deep space to it and this these graphic almost these tree, tree like, like forms. Yeah, and I found uh, that was, and that and one I, I found fascinating. Definitely yeah. started its life horizontal and, and right. migrated to the vertical. <laughs> right. I would think it also it. would you know you're talking about it as painters. I could see it being a very painterly you know, painter show, like how did you achieve that? How did she do that? And I saw it like, as an art historian, more of like a pastiche of painting styles that she put together quite skillfully. And I followed this artist for years and she used to make work that was very figurative, that was very pointedly political. And I saw a very political aspect to this very bold, very exuberant, very, um, you know, like jouissance, this idea of female pleasure, mm -hmm. of painting. She's taking just enormous pleasure mm -hmm. in the act of painting, and she's doing it on a large scale, and she's using surface, and she's using glitter, and she's unashamedly, unabashedly, like, just taking it on. And I think from her subject position, she's also gay. I just feel like this really is a sort of a, a painting as a political act, and I, that's how I took the work and that shift as well, which I think it's rare that you see, you know, really um, committed artists do this, that they'll, you know, really change their signature style. And she really had a, almost a kind of uh, branding in the types of paintings she did, and this is, she took a complete mm. turn here. So I also thought that was really um, admirable. I, I, I really enjoyed that um, exhibition. Uh, I, I enjoyed much of this exhibition as well, but I'm intrigued about, and a, a, a little bit of me is with Thomas, because um, 
actually, these are very public paintings. Uh, the scale of these works um, and the clarity as well. There's, they're, they're orchestrated symphonies of uh, exuberant, uh, clashing kind of um, uh, not just um, forms but also styles. This is as if there are uh, vocabularies from very different painterly languages being very carefully brought together um, in a in a kind of uh, collage, um, and and so these these are paintings that um, occupy a, a medium that is all about uh, discovery, um, but the uh, the effect is in fact. Uh, of things that have been discovered already and are being shared with the world. So there's a, uh, an enormous amount of rhetoric in um, paintings whose, whose approach is actually, was born out of something that's non-rhetorical, that is, that is much more lyrical and personal. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think it, it, it's actually a tension that makes these works um, maybe more interesting but I'm, I'm constantly intrigued to talk to other people and find out whether they veer more towards uh, uh, the political, rhetorical, uh, collage aspect or more towards the really genuine, exuberant, sort of Dionysian aspect. I think these are more Apollonian than Dionysian. Yeah. And, and I think that the masquerade is Dionysian, which is, I think, what bothers me. And I, I fully allow that could be a matter of taste. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if I see a painter like, I don't know, Jackie Sococcio or Trudy Benson, I feel as if she's, they're putting together styles, but they're putting them together in, in a way that's as surprising to them as it is to the viewer. And right. I didn't feel as if that was happening in the show. Right. It's a little bit of a lexicon of... Techniques. Yeah, but I, I, I think, I feel like that's part of what she wants to do. I mean, she has this sort of history in like, um, you know, activist poster making, yeah. advertising, graphic design. And I think that there's a, a sensibility there of like, you know, what, what are colors uh, that, that, that are appealing together? What kind of, you know, matte versus luster versus gloss, you know, thick versus thin. There, there, there's a... a um, I don't want to say like a it's not like a calculated commercial thing but there's there's a there's a visual um uh kind of familiarity with it's not it's not just painting it's not just about yes. painting it's about surface in across a, a lot of different uh disciplines and media and I think it's that's Apollonian, interesting she doesn't have a romantic relationship with painting she doesn't have an expressionistic mm. romantic right. relationship with painting it's very methodical it's thought out but she understands it and she shows you that she understands it mm -hmm. and she also makes it beautiful and expressive and outside like she can outsize you know the guys mm -hmm. but she she she's uh she doesn't have a romance with paint but she is bringing together uh, references to a lot of other people who did have a romance exactly with paint. Mm -hmm. right um, well, she does talk about acrylic paint, like that. That oil paint has its 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 own history, and acrylic paint has a history with with uh, you know car paint and nail polish and synthetic chemistry. Right. And mm -hmm. I think that's pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, they are very they're pop abstraction mm -hmm. in a way, aren't they? Are they pop abstraction? Is that a fair uh, designation? Um, I feel that they're not. I'm, I think they're more pastiche, like putting things together rather than you know, being a totality. Sort of David Sally without any buttocks. So no. No. Okay. <laughs> but they, they, um, but they are um, actually, on the subject of buttocks, um, the, 
the, in past shows, but st still a little bit in this one, the Georgia O'Keeffe homage is very strong, isn't it? There's um, mm -hmm. the, the, the vaginal shapes. Um, um, it, it's almost uh, sort of um, going back to the, uh, the poster um, uh, and the, the, the mural, um, a sort of public celebration of uh, some notion of the feminine. Is that, is that in play? You've, yeah, I think you've, you've, well, Karen has said that. I there didn't is. really see that. Um, I thought you just said that in a way. No, no, no. I just said that, you know, you, you said, is it pop abstraction? And before that, you were, you were talking about how the, the forms are, um, the, I think I thought I heard you talking about the, the exuberance of the forms. No, I th I, the exuberance more of the expression and the scale uh -huh. and the joy. Not joy. I think that she's the, the pleasure in painting. I think is apparent in the work. You know, you can right. really. I think that comes across. I think that's a part of the work themselves, and that's what I think. I don't think she's let go of the political, and I think from her subject position, it, it comes through. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I. I, I wouldn't think that anyone but a woman had. I mean, it's, it's a, that's a really kind of dicey thing to say, but I couldn't. I, I, this isn't. There's, I think there is a feminine or feminist thrust to the work yes. that, um, you know, you, you wouldn't want to put too many formal, you know, limits on that. But um, it does feel as if there's. Um, yeah, it might it might be it might be you know the the emphasis on curves. I don't know. I don't want to get too far out on a limb with that. But it right. it did. I, I can't imagine. Uh, how was that? I said, be careful. Yeah, but you know, I, it's, essentialism is still a crime. Yeah, yeah. It's, it hasn't yeah. been uh, legalized yet. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, sure. Lots of curves in Arp and Miro, and um, um, you can be a good feminist and use straight lines. But I think that there are. Um, I think that the, in, in the, one could really look at past work and very specifically see uh, allusions to a, 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 a Georgia O'Keeffe type floral vaginal um, motif. I think that's, and that there are residues of that in this show as well, I think. Would have to, I would have to uh, have an anatomy book and a catalog to, to, to make the point more <laughs> explicitly, but um, I got that vibe from mm -hmm. them. Right. Anyway, um, audience, uh, let's hear from you about um, Ankle Otero at the Bronx Museum and Carrie Moyer at DC Moore. Maybe we'll do it in order this time. Can we take some, some uh, feedback on, on what you made of our discussion of uh, Otero? Um, there's a mic that can go around. Um, any any. Actually, whatever you want to talk about, we can come back to Otero, we can start with Moya, makes no difference. Let's get some, some feedback on these last two shows, Otero and uh, Moya. Who wants to talk about vaginas? Raise your hand. <laughs> Sorry. Well, this isn't on the program, but um, going out to the Bronx Museum to yeah. see um, the Angel Otera um, show. Also, there's a fantastic Gordon Maddox Clark show there now, and it really makes it really worth the trip. I highly recommend it. Did you get yes. That? I'd like to say something. Can you wait for the mic? Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Here it comes. So about this vagina thing, forget it, David. <laughs> Just forget it. It's wrong. 
Um, uh, and I think, uh, I mean, I think if we're going to go with geometry and curvy shapes, you know, that I guess the exciting thing, well, actually, I didn't want to say this at all, but the exciting thing is to move inside of that geometric shape, move against it with the kind of undulating forms. And I wouldn't, I can understand how a painter would feel interested in that as from a, addressing female concerns, perhaps, not, ugh, it's a terrible term, um, addressing, uh, well, maybe pushing against geometry, let me say, and then that being indicative of something. But I, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say, I, I wouldn't go so far as to conflate jouissance and, and, and the vagina quite so literally. Um, I think it's kind of unfair to her in a way. Um, and I also wanted to say just about the show itself and the work is that uh, it was very exciting to me to see that she could really fuck up. Like, she took a lot of chances in that show, and I was excited. There was so, it's such a huge space, so much work. And there were times when she just really tried and, you know, sort of fell against the wall, and other times where the paintings really worked and stuck to the wall, and it was exciting to see her still take those chances with that show. Thank you. But she, clearly she's an artist of prodigious industry because the, the Mary Boone show opening, uh, it's kind of in parallel with it, um, uh, it does contain some historic work, but it's, it's mostly of new work as well. So, and the scale and, the, and the, the depth of the work suggests a woman who can certainly put the hours in. Jennifer. Yeah. Hi. Um, yeah, I just wanted to say I think Carrie Moyer is ta talking about the female body and uh, she said in an interview with me that she likes the idea that people would look at her work and Can say... Can you use the mic? I can't quite hear Oh, sorry. Here I go. Should I start over? Start over, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think Carrie Moyer is talking about female bodies in the work. And in an interview with me, she said she likes the idea that people would look at the work and say, oh, there's boobs in there. Right. That's okay. it. I was, on the, I was in the right. I was in the right area. I was just. I was just off by a, a couple of feet. Phew. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Oh yes, lots of female hands are going up now. Okay. Great. Front row. At the same time that it may be speaking to the female, I think it's also was interesting what you said about dance. And, and I was thinking about music when I was revisiting the show and thinking about the sometimes like how music can have like these very lovely, harmonious things and then suddenly these very harsh you know, angular sounds. And that's at play in this work very much and it's, it doesn't necessarily have to be a feminist statement. It could also be about the formalist and the more sensual, erotic, up mm. against each other and the dichotomy of that, which can be also very powerful. Fantastic, yeah. thank you. I'm just wondering if Elizabeth... Wait for the, wait for the mic, <laughs> yeah, thanks. I'm just wondering if Elizabeth would be willing to, um, if we could bring the images back up to, is there, is there one up there that you think hangs together that you think yeah could you would you would you talk about it could you put the images back up um yeah that's it's a powerpoint that sort of works on a rotation but yeah let's let's as long as you've all taken good note of the date here april the 10th <laughs> then we can let him go and uh, put the put put um 
Fantastic. Thanks, guys. The union might ask them for some overtime because they're only supposed to show it twice. But anyway. <laughs> cool. It's coming. It's coming. Um, no, it, I give my speakers a very strict pep talk. Before. <laughs> oh, here we are. A strict pep talk about how they're not, we're not supposed to actually refer to the slides. Uh, because uh, it's just the benefit of the audience. So it's rather fun that after 13 years, finally a member of the audience is saying they want the slides. So there we are. <laughs> um, okay, but what, so what, what, is, what is Julie's challenge and how is Elizabeth going to rise to it? That's what I'm <laughs> slightly <laughs> at a loss here. Rather daunting, it's the very end painting, so the furthest one down. It's a very, very big painting. And it, none of these images look like the show at all because of the surfaces, as right. has been pointed out in the discussion are various, but that painting has little spots of yellow stripes in it that the, I'm talking about the one on the far, far right. The, yeah. No, the one on the very far end, like straight ahead. Yeah. And oh. so, yeah, I mean, you can't see them. There's, there's these little tablet shapes of stripes. And then these, oh, yeah, the next slide should be that one, actually. OK. Oh, yeah, can we can see it? No. OK. Whoops. OK. Oh, yeah, we lost it. Anyway, it's 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 just a really beautiful painting. Uh, and I guess the coherence point that you want me to speak to is that while she's working with disparate parts, they really knit together in that painting. They can hang together as disparate parts, but it doesn't matter. I think that's... Can I just say one more thing while I have this mic? Say three more yeah, I, got time, got the mic. I think that, I mean, with Jeffries too, there's something about aporia that was a big popular concept in the 90s. You know, this irreconcilable kind of uh, difference that exists on the surface of something or exists in an artwork. And I, I felt that with Jaffrey, to, to the discussion about Jaffrey having not seen the show. And, and I feel that about Carrie's work in the sense that, that, there's, that sometimes there's just disparate parts and they, they can they function together and it's fine, yet they retain their separateness, but they can cohere in a composition. And then sometimes they don't. Um, but I, maybe we should go to the show. <laughs> okay, yes. Um, anything more to say about, uh, well, there's tons more to say, I'm sure. We could just, yes, uh, Jeffrey, fine. This is probably just a, a, a slightly formalist comment. Uh, and I'm not the hugest fan of her work. I, I frequently have trouble with her color, which I find, especially when she lays it down huge and flat and, and so many essentially primaries. I, I just want to say, though, that the, the installation of DC Moore I found very, just kind of a poor installation compared to, to the experience I had at Mary Boone, which was really, really gave me a nice and a much more personal jolt. And I think it was because there were less paintings, better sighted and better illuminated than at DC Moore. I just felt that the DC Moore experience was just kind of a little overwhelming with a, same, a certain kind of sameness uh, in spite of the really in, incredible and, and virtuous um, diversity of her mark making gestures, et cetera, which I can certainly appreciate. But if you haven't seen the installation at, at uh, Mary Boone Uptown, I, I strongly urge you to go see it, because I think, it, I think the paintings uh, uh, situated on isolated walls really feel much more personal, and I really felt much more connected to the, uh, to the paint and to the, the entire visual experience. Right. And the rag rolling of Mary Boone's space, it goes with the uh, 
oddities of textures in in uh... in, in, the, in a certain way yes okay all right well we've also got the yardstick haven't we of um, her uh, installation at the uh, Whitney Biennial last year which was uh, um, a real kind of inner sanctum of um, uh, color and kinkiness in the, in the heart of that show um, Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. I'll see you over the road at uh, one Grand Army Plaza. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, panelists.